0: Al Jazeera podcasts. Israel is carrying out genocide in Gaza, and its leaders are the main inciters. That's the accusation at the heart of South Africa's case at the UN's top court. Israel says it's defending itself and denies the allegations. But will this case stop the suffering of Palestinians in Gaza? Hello, I'm Adrian Finnegan, and this is the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help to define major global stories. Let's bring in our guests from Cape Town. We're joined by Sanusha Naidu, a senior research fellow at the Institute for Global Dialogue and Independent Foreign Policy Think Tank. In the US state of Colorado is Wadi Said, a professor of law and dean's faculty fellow at the University of Colorado School of Law. And in London, Nima Sultani, a reader in public law at the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London. A warm welcome to you all. We'll look in depth at uh, Israel's response on Saturday's Inside Story. Uh, in the meantime, Nima, were South Africa's arguments enough to persuade the court to issue a provisional order for Israel to stop its war on Gaza?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think the South African uh, lawyers uh, have presented a tightly argued and a very compelling, in terms of facts and law, a case for the issuing of provisional measures. We need to remember that the threshold required in the stage of provisional measures is different than the the stage of the merits. So at this uh, particular stage, South Africa is not required to show that all of uh, Israel's actions and all of the Israeli's statements are necessarily uh, genocidal. All they need to show is that these actions and these statements are capable of falling within the genocide convention, that there is a possible interpretation that these are genocidal and therefore there is a risk of genocide. The provisional measures stage is a stage in which the court issues a temporary injunction in order to prevent further risk. Of uh, genocide, when there is a place, a plausible case that this risk exists, in order to allow further deliberation that might take years in the middle stage. But you can't wait for the full uh, determination uh, that might take years uh, for the genocidal, uh, possibly genocidal campaign uh, to continue. So I think the South African delegation uh, pointed to two main elements. On the one hand, that Israel's conduct uh, uh, shows uh, the pattern of conduct shows a genocidal uh, intent, as well as explicit statements by different levels of Israeli policymakers, army generals, and even soldiers that show, again, genocidal intent. And the combination of these two factors, as well as the fact that they uh, showed that there's an urgency in terms of issuing these provisional measures and that the lack of issuing provisional measures will lead to grave and appalling uh, consequences. So if we look at the lower threshold required in the provisional measures stage, if we look at the previous case law by the Industrial Court of Justice, such as the cases uh, of uh, the Gambia business, uh, Myanmar in particular, it is highly likely that the uh, court will issue uh, okay. some uh, provisional measures as requested by South Africa.
0: All right. let's, let's bring in Wadi uh, then. Um, Given the time it takes for the the ICJ to reach a verdict, is pursuing the legal route, as South Africa has done, actually worthwhile?
2: I, I certainly think so, because if you think about the desperation of the situation on the ground and what the people of Gaza are going through, you know, any and all means are, you know, are, I think, of profound import at this time... Simply for showing I mean, I think the idea of establishing a record and a sort of establishing also the that the conduct of the of the Israeli military and Israeli officials has risen to such an incredibly dangerous and and serious level that it requires this type of international intervention by a country that isn't party to any hostilities, as the Israeli team has pointed out uh, today in their arguments. So what we're seeing here is a, a statement of solidarity, a statement that the Palestinians and what they're going through haven't been forgotten, and that there is profound support around the world uh, for establishing some sort of justice for what they've been for the people of Gaza have been forced to endure during this whole, you know, over three month period of incredibly violent bombings and, uh, and 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 other attacks. So. I think certainly symbolically it's important. I mean, your previous question to, to Professor Sultani about, you know, the 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 import of this, et cetera, I, I think we can get a little too carried away with the idea of concrete solutions and interventions, and is this binding, and is there an enforcement mechanism? There's also a profound moral and legal argument that transcends borders and transcends just this particular series of this particular violent um, violent conflict that's taking place.
0: Sanusha, um, regardless of, of whether the, the ICJ uh, issues this provisional order, has South Africa done enough at least to sway the court of public opinion?
3: Uh, I certainly do think it has. I mean, if you're really looking at the way in which social media spaces are evolving, you've got... Uh, particular sections of social media actually commending South Africa and saying thank you uh, for taking this and bringing it to the world's attention and using the international... Uh, legal system and the international uh, bringing it into the context of international conventions like the the 1948 Genocide Convention and using the, the, the international law as the basis in which they have brought out the question of how do we abide by the human rights international law principles, values and normative framework, which for years I think has been subjected to the kind of challenges that South Africa has also brought into its context of why the international system needs to be reformed in in terms of the multilateralism. And of course, South Africa takes a lot of uh, criticism on this. We saw this last year with the BRICS and whether South Africa would go ahead with the BRICS because of Russia and Putin and the whole uh, ICC arrest warrant and a whole lot of questions around South Africa's legitimacy. What South Africa has done is that it's very carefully crafted a legal argument looking at the basis of what my two uh, panelists have described as important questions. And I think in the court of public opinion, it's brought an issue to the fore, which in many ways I think has been so contentious for, for so many years that just, you didn't actually see the traction or you didn't see how this was gonna happen. And I think the, the the way in which this has been done is that it's used the question of the 1948 genocide convention, but it loses it in the context of intent And here, I think it's very important to actually also raise the point that this is about the plausibility of what South Africa is putting out as an argument. So, yes, it is is provisional as well, but it's also the question of, you know, despite what the ruling is from the ICJ and how long they'll take to make this ruling in terms of what the the, the president of the, of, of the court of the justices said this afternoon in wrapping up, I think that you can no longer shy away from the fact that it's now there, that the issue of Palestine, the issue of the humanitarian crisis, the international law that has been violated in terms of questions around sovereignty, but also in terms of international convention, is no longer able to be sh- uh, to be to, to be put in the back burner or okay. shied away from. So in a sense, the genie is out of the bottle now for many people for many countries to start thinking about how they go forward on this.
0: Nema, how important was historical context to South Africa's case?
3: Well, on the one hand, in
1: terms of uh, the influence on public opinion, I think uh, the uh, very submission by South Africa and then the uh, performance in the hearing yesterday had uh, a significant impact on public opinion. First of all, this is uh, the first time in which the, uh, the uh, perspective that is sympathetic to the Palestinians, that tells the story of Gaza in the last three months and the attack on the Palestinian people in a way that uh, goes beyond the uh, propaganda and obfuscation, And details the harrowing facts and the details of the suffering that has been inflicted uh, uh, on the uh, Palestinians in Gaza in the last three months in a very compelling manner, in a very comprehensive manner, in a way that disrupts dominant narratives that we have heard in the dominant media and uh, especially in the West and Western uh, governments in particular. So one uh, narrative that has been uh, powerfully disrupted by the submission and the the, um, oral presentation at the hearing uh, yesterday is the idea that this is uh, violence outside context, that this is an attack uh, of of an external nature in which uh, uh, Palestinians have crossed a sovereign uh, border. But in, uh, in contrast to that, what we saw that South Africa has insisted on the context and the context is one of ecu- occupation 50 se- 56 years of occupation 75 years of apartheid being inflicted on the palestinians 16 years of siege on gaza uh, uh, at least four major uh, highly disproportionate military onslaughts on gaza once you recognize that gaza is occupied and is un- under apartheid you can no longer argue you can no longer Uh, uh, argue that this is an external attack, that this is an unprovoked attack. This is an attack in the dynamics between occupier and occupied. This is an attack in which the Palestinians in Gaza are suffering from the ongoing denial of the right to self-determination, from the ongoing denial of their uh, right to return. So what we saw in the media and uh, by Western politicians in the past three months, no one mentioned apartheid. South Africa, given its historical experience, was the one who put the apartheid on the table no one mentioned that it's occupied south africa mentioned that it's occupied secondly the dismissive tone in much of the media in the last three months about the uh, the suggestion that this is a genocide there have been many scorers and u.n experts who warned of the risk of genocide uh, since mid-october at least and this suggestion was dismissed by many commentators and then suddenly South Africa is showing in a comprehensive way, in a compelling way, in a legal document, that there is a strong case for that explains in a comprehensive, systematic matter the conduct of Israel. Because also the third element of this is that many of the commentators, commentators in order to enable their dismissive tone towards the suggestion that this is a genocide, they completely ignored in the Western media the genocidal... Uh, statements and the side genocide by uh, Israelis, despite the fact that they have been uh, embarrassed continuously by the unrelenting uh, uh, or unceasing production of such genocidal statements by the Israelis, including statements in the last few days before mm. the ICJ uh, hearing uh, yesterday. So that also was uh, challenged by the fact that South Africa had about 10 pages or so or so, of an unexhaustive list of statements by different levels of Israeli policymakers, army generals, and public opinion uh, makers that show the uh, genocidal intent. And finally, it also disrupted the idea that... Just
0: quickly, Nima.
1: Yeah, many legal commentators were talking about a particular strike in Jabalia, whether it's disproportionate or not, in accordance with the laws of conflict. Instead, South Africa showed, no, there's actually... Uh, A forest here, not only trees, and there's a comprehensive story to be be told, and it's a question of
0: genocide. Wadi, um, let's suppose for a moment that the court does issue a provisional order against Israel. Um, How do you think that order would differ from the one that the court issued to Russia? Would it be more carefully worded, constructed? Of course, Russia ignored the order that the, the, the court issued against it, exposing the limits of the court's powers
2: again i think that the focus on i mean if we go if we go and we look at the 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 fact that the palestinians have been denied the opportunity in much of the western media and much of the coverage of this issue and and that you know that sort of denial of an access to the narrative or denial of that narrative as it is among Western countries, the United States, et cetera, to even hear the Palestinian narrative, to even to even recognize the wider context, as opposed to just focusing on individual incidents. The the I think we we have to return to. The symbolic nature, as mentioned by both uh, both previous uh, you know, both guests previously here, uh, the symbolic nature of South Africa, with its more the moral force of South Africa being the country to actually present this and uh, to present this complaint at the ICJ, is incredibly powerful. In addition, in addition, uh, the idea that the World Court doesn't have the, you know, the enforcement mechanism or that it might be, it might be ignored. I mean, that's, you know, that's part and parcel of this whole exercise. I mean, remember in 2004, the same body issued an overwhelming, uh, overwhelmingly uh, you know, clear decision on the fact that the Israeli government built a wall in the West Bank. Uh, and that was under a different procedure and a different—you know, it wasn't under the Genocide Convention, it was an advisory opinion. But that opinion was largely ignored, even up to the point of the fact where the Israeli judge—the Israeli appointed judge to this proceeding, who at that time was the president of the Israeli Supreme Court, Aharon Barak, uh, basically wrote an opinion saying, well, we interpret international law differently in response to the wall case, and we find that the wall is legal. I don't think you're going to see that level of kind of, uh, you know, thumbing Israel thumbing its nose at anything that the ICJ does, particularly because of the charge of genocide. So I think symbolically it's so important that the focus, right, and also it's, you know, an actual case on the merits is going to take many, many years. So the focus on any type of action here is important for sure, but I think it, it doesn't tell the whole story of the symbolic nature of this, and the fact that there could be actual consequences going forward, will it actually stop the bombardment? Uh, I have—I uh, don't have many hopes about that.
0: Sanusha, please come back on anything that uh, that you heard Wadi and uh, Nima saying there, but I want to ask you uh, about how this is being played in, in South Africa itself, what people there are making uh, of, of what their country is doing at uh, the ICJ.
3: OK, so I think on, on how this is actually having an impact on the domestic public opinion is really uh, very interesting because you are seeing on social media. Yes, there's there, there are those social media activists and, and commentators who are trying to discredit South Africa to say that, oh, South Africa is taking a, 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 this case to the ICJ. But really, domestically, they have failed their, uh, the South African public in terms of the lack of providing a better uh, were a better domestic environment, the politics have been caught up in its own uh, challenges of social justice struggles, and yet you're going to the to the International Court of Justice and demanding for this kind of accountability um, and to stop what they say, what they see in terms of the application. So there's a bit of that kind of pushback and backlash. By those who feel, uh, and especially within the broader social media space, that they can that that they vent their anger, that this is basically a, 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 an application that's being done where there's a level of morality and legitimacy, and that South whole, uh you know shining the, the the light on something very important. And as my who uh, colleagues have said, bringing it in the context of the legitimacy and the moral and the ethical context of it. But domestically, they feel that there are those that feel that South Africa, uh, the government, in particular, the ANC government, is not doing the same. And I think you've got to now start understanding that these are are also questions that are being raised in terms of how this will play out in the election. I think, from what I could gather, there's a sense of pride right now in South Africa amongst uh, different quarters of the South African public to say that, we always have the sense that South Africa would not do a good job at the ICJ, that the arguments may be a bit more scattered and fragmented. But the way the arguments were presented, the, 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 the way it was carefully crafted, and the kind of uh, application that was put forward, and, of course, the legal team making their, their statements yesterday in terms of the application itself. I think on social media as well, and, of course, in different domestic media spaces, you're beginning to see a sense of pride that we never saw before. Okay. You know, South Africa's domestic politics have been really caught up in different okay. challenges and this gives it that pride. If I just may for to, uh, a minute, just to, to respond Very quickly, because we're,
0: we're, time is against us.
3: Just to say that, I think it's a very interesting point that was raised about the moral authority of South Africa, because for years, South Africa has also been challenged about what's its moral authority and its voice and agency in international relations, constantly going back to the Nelson Mandela years and saying, we've lost that authority. And I think this is important. Uh, that we see it there. And the last point to make here is, I think what South Africa's case has also done is that persecution doesn't happen in particular contexts. And I think it's challenging also the international institutions and the way they operate. And even if the ICJ does not have the mandate to whatever decision it makes to carry it out, I think it's also raising how international institutions are also facing their own kind of ambiguity in terms of implementing their decisions.
0: Nima, how do you think South Africa um, played it, it, its case, the argument th- that it made? I, I know, because I, I, I saw you uh, your, your, do we call them tweets anymore, on X? Your X is on X. Uh, you were particularly impressed with the arguments put forward by the Irish lawyer, uh, Bleen Nigrole, uh, representing South Africa, weren't you?
1: Indeed, uh, what uh, Blena has uh, presented in the court was a very compelling case, if there ever has been one, uh, for issuing um, uh, provisional measures, uh, because uh, she, saw, she showed convincingly uh, how urgent and how dire the situation is and what the consequences uh, for not issuing uh, uh, provisional measures would be. On the one hand, on the other hand, she also showed there's a long record of uh, jurisprudence by the court itself that basically uh, mandates the court uh, in uh, in 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 the direction of issuing uh, provisional measures, and that should the court not issue provisional measures, the court will depart from that line of jurisprudence. And that will look uh, uh, dire for the court, for the legitimacy of the court, and will undermine the integrity of international law. Because one of the main issues that we have uh, faced in the last three months is the selectivity and the hypocrisy of many uh, powerful actors, namely the US and the EU, in relation to uh, uh, Israel's conduct in Gaza, compared to their uh, approach to Russian invasion of Ukraine, and other cases. Okay. All right. Uh, the, Nima, Nima, one other I'm, element to yeah. say quickly... Very, 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 very quickly. Africa, I'm
0: running out of time here.
1: Should the court issue uh, provisional measures, it puts uh, to notice every single state that is a member of the Genocide Convention, okay. that it uh, or they, like South Africa, have an obligation to discharge to prevent genocide.
0: Wadi, how much of this is theatre? Holding Israel to account in front of the world for its actions in Gaza, will that in itself... Have an effect on global opinion, regardless of what the ICJ decides in this case for South Africa, is it already a case of mission accomplished?
2: To a large degree, to a large degree, a large degree, yes. Because I think what we've seen, especially I'm speaking from the United States, and what have we seen? We've seen spokespeople for the government, we've seen the Secretary of State come out and say, This is meritless. We think this is unhelpful. This is a baseless case. And the fact that The United States and powerful actors who are supporting Israel and the Israelis themselves can't just dismiss this out of hand has been an amazing step, an amazing event to actually witness because, you know, we're used to this type of dismissive coverage. We're used to the United States providing Israel with cover in the UN Security Council to the point where people... Uh, you know, repeatedly raised this question of how useful is the international system if it can be short-circuited by one powerful actor acting to protect a, uh, you know, a a a major ally. And we've seen that that has been subject to real scrutiny and, uh, you know, in a way that, you know, hasn't happened before, where it's just been kind of dismissive the, the Palestinian claims and Palestinian complaints about what had they, what the Israelis have been doing, and the dangerous nature of it and the the illegal nature of it, having been dismissed out of hand, now that's actually being these claims are actually being heard and taken seriously, and the world is paying attention. So I think this has been an exceedingly important, uh, an exceedingly okay. important. A series of well, circumstances and an event to actually witness.
0: As I said at the beginning of the program, program we'll be uh, discussing Israel's response at the court in our next inside story. In the meantime, many thanks to you all for being with us. Uh, Sanusha Naidu, Wadi Syed and uh, Nima Sultani. This episode was produced by Mohammed El Aishi, Fintan Monahan, Abla Kla, and Jimmy Gattahun. Studio side was by Dragan Vrankovic. The program was edited by Manish Mathai. Lennon Guyon, Vanessa Keneally, and Joda Frias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. And thanks for listening. Tune in again on Saturday for our next edition. On the next Necessary Tomorrows, science fiction writer Christopher Brown imagines a future where animals have the same rights as humans.
3: If corporations
0: have rights, why can't trees? If a corporation can be a legal person, why can't an elephant? An indigenous lawyer, Jack Fiander, takes the city of Seattle into tribal court on behalf of salmon for destroying their habitat with a dam.
2: If it ultimately established that salmon have rights that can be violated, just like people do, that would be
1: pretty earth-shaking.
0: The Rights of Nature on Necessary Tomorrows, a
1: new podcast by Doha Debates and Al Jazeera. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts.